Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. The rest of us invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to finish up this chapter this morning. I realized, um, I think this is the fifth message on this, uh, really, it's a large chapter and there's quite a bit here and we want to uh, just read our text this morning, which is going to be verses 25 to 40 and then we'll... um, introduce it before pulling it apart here together. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 25, Paul says now, this is a new section. He's writing, um, he's addressing another issue that they have wrote, uh, written to him about. In verse 25, he says, now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that it is good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none." And those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided." The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided that in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then, he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Now, there's a lot there, so don't panic. (laughs) When we come face to face with life's various situations, all the things of life, we um, we can respond to that in one of four ways. Uh, We can do the wrong thing with the wrong attitude. Uh, We can also do the wrong thing while having the right attitude or reason for doing it. Uh, You can do the right thing with the wrong attitude. (laughs) And lastly, you can do the right thing with the right attitude. Um, The middle two are the hardest to, uh, to counsel. It's those two where you have people do the wrong thing, but they do it with the right, for the right reason or the right motivation. I think about, I've um, been watching a lot of basketball the last week or so, and 
Uh, I'm always, uh, and I, having played in high school and things like that, I know that uh, there's an encouragement to be unselfish, to be an unselfish player. And sometimes in our zeal to be unselfish, which is the right motivation, um, we will make extra passes on the playing field, uh, playing court, and, and actually end up turning the ball over. It gets stolen because uh, it, it's not necessary. And so that's an example of someone doing the wrong thing, making a pass, with the right motivation or attitude, which is, you know, to be unselfish. And the other issue that can be challenging to counsel is when people do the right thing, but they do it with the wrong attitude. Uh, this is pretty much all of us at some point, but especially our children, right, when they're asked to clean up their rooms or, or do some task or chore, they'll do what you ask them to do, but they're doing it with a scowl on their face, and they're doing it with uh, complaining in their heart. Um, and so, you know, that would be an example of doing the right thing with the wrong attitude. And, uh, and of course, when we do the wrong thing with the proper attitude, or at least with the right motivation, uh, and that's confronted, our typical response is, well, I didn't, I didn't mean to turn the ball over. I, didn't, I wasn't trying to cause a problem, right? So we focus solely on motivation, and we kind of appeal to our motivations. Uh, and when we do the right thing with the wrong attitude, think about the kid who's cleaning up their room, when that's confronted, inevitably the response is, well, it got done, right? I did what you asked me to do. And again, we're only focused on outcomes, but the Christian life isn't one that's focused solely on motivation, uh, and the Christian life isn't one that's focused solely on um, actions or uh, outcomes. True godliness, true godliness unites righteous actions with righteous motivations and reasons. Uh, and give you there's, there's examples we could look at all over the New Testament, but one that stands out is Second Timothy two verse two, uh, twenty two. Excuse me. Paul writes to Timothy, "Now flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace." Those are that's an encouragement by Paul to re, to pursue righteous actions, and he says we're to do that. He's to do that, and so are we with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So again, we see righteous actions. Uh, pursuing youthful, uh, forsaking youthful lusts and pursuing righteousness and doing so with a pure heart alongside those who have a pure heart. So again, righteous actions with a pure heart um, are what the scriptures call us to. And, and we have to always come back to the reality that that is impossible by our own efforts. You and I cannot be truly godly in our own capacity. True godliness is a gift of God's grace. Only when we have come to the end of ourselves and acknowledge that, that we are corrupt to the core and we are utterly sinful, only then is the soil of our hearts truly prepared to rest in and receive Christ as, uh, and his work at the cross for our behalf and then truly live for him. There is no other way to do this. As Hebrews reminds us in chapter 9, verse 14, only the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, only the blood of Christ cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Uh, nothing else can do that. And yet, even as those who've been washed clean by Christ's blood, our best efforts, our most noble, righteous motivation and actions are still shot through with weakness and imperfection. 
And uh, we're dependent on God's grace in everything for our salvation, for our sanctification, and even for our glorification. At every moment, we are dependent, utterly dependent on the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You and I have so much to repent of. Even in our most noble um, actions, may we never presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through us. We can never lose sight of that. And 1 Corinthians, I think, is a good reminder of that. This was a church, as we learned at the beginning of chapter 1, that had everything. It had every spiritual gift. It had every spiritual um, gifting and resource at its disposal. And yet, even they were wandering around in the darkness trying to walk in wisdom with something as simple as marriage and singleness. And the lingering question of chapter 7 is and has been what they're asking Paul, what do we do now that we're disciples of Jesus Christ? What does that mean for a follower of Christ? Should a believer get married? Should a believer ever be divorced? What if our husband or wife is not a Christian? What if we're already divorced? Um, can we remarry? You know, to whom and in what circumstances, if that's possible, and so forth. So all these questions are swirling around this chapter because Paul, they have written to Paul. And as we've noted, Paul's answer to those questions is, it depends. It just depends. And he, he's very careful to qualify what he says here in chapter 7. Marriage, we said, has been established by God. It is defined by God as a sacred bond between one man and one woman. And that sacred bond is characterized in Scripture by, as by mutuality, exclusiveness, intimacy, and permanence. But marriage is not for everybody. And that's what Paul wants us to understand. And if you look at chapter 7, in verse 7, Paul says, I wish that all men were even as I myself am, him being single. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that, Paul acknowledges that for many of us, we will be married at some point in our lives. That is kind of the norm. But for others, singleness is how God has gifted them. And singleness is good and right and even comes with some wonderful spiritual advantages. But the Corinthians had gotten themselves all turned around, all twisted around. There was a faction, maybe not a whole church, but there was certainly a faction in the church who thought that being a follower of Christ necessitated living a life of singleness and celibacy if you were married. Their thinking was, well, Jesus taught us uh, in the Gospels, we have it recorded, that, that they're neither given uh, marrying or given in marriage in the age to come, in heaven. So we're already sort of part of that spirit um, that time through the Spirit now in the present, at least in a preliminary way. So the logic says we should probably be like the angels now. We don't need to be married, or if we are married, we can uh, take a life, a vow, if you will, of celibacy in our marriages. And, um, and there were these groups, we called them the ascetics, um, kind of speaking about the harsh treatment of their physical bodies, they were running around telling everybody, hey, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. He mentions that in verse 1, chapter 7. Um, there's some debate on this, but I think it's clear that that's what they were saying. This was not Paul writing them and telling them this. this is, he's like, I'm writing to you about what you said. What did you say? That it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And so he's responding to that. So if you're married... 
You know, the, their thinking was you should remain celibate. Maybe you should even divorce your spouse and, and pursue what is perceived as the higher spiritual life of singleness. Or if you are already single, of course, their, their encouragement, their maybe even commandment would have been you should never get married because that's what true godliness demands. And Paul says, listen, no, 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 that's not it at all. His counsel to them, the orienting principle of his counsel all throughout the chapter has been this, stay where you are with some exceptions, understanding that there will, there will be exceptions. For most of us, not all, but most situations, his counsel is stay where you are. So if you're married, doesn't matter if your spouse is a Christian or not, and they're willing to stay married to you, listen, be married to that person and enjoy that and fulfill every obligation to your spouse spiritually and physically. If you're married, stay married. If you're unmarried, he says, consider staying unmarried. You don't have to get married. You can live a perfectly godly life of singleness that is right and good. And if you're married and your spouse is not a Christian, he even counsels that group of people. He says, listen, you can, um, you can be married to them. And if they take themselves out of the marriage and they want to leave, he says, you don't need to be concerned about that. <clears throat> you can trust them and trust that whole situation to God, and you can let them go and not be in sin. He wants them to understand. It's not has nothing to do with, you don't have any control over that, and so it is what it is. So in the case of abandonment, something like that, in chapter 7, verse 15 and 16, he speaks about that. You can do that. He says, listen, your calling to Christ sanctifies whatever context he's called you. And um, that's what we learned last Sunday then in verses 17 to 24. The gospel makes ethnic and religious settings irrelevant to glorifying himself. And the gospel makes social settings irrelevant to glorifying Christ in our lives. And so you can, you can certainly honor God in whatever marriage context that you can that he calls you. That was the logic of his argument. If, if these things, these greater realities, allow you to glorify God, then you can most certainly do that in whatever marriage context that God calls you, married or unmarried, widowed or married to an unbeliever. So, and we ended last time by noting that married believers haven't been dealt a better or worse hand by God. Unmarried believers haven't been dealt a better or worse hand by God. And Christians married to unbelievers um, haven't been dealt a better or worse hand by God. We don't need to make excuses for our setting, our context, and we certainly do not need to, um, to invest those, uh, our desire to change our circumstances with spiritual significance as if it one necessitated a change or not. And to borrow the playing card analogy, you don't need, to, you don't need better cards what you need is simply to play the winning hand that God has dealt you in Christ. Coming to him means bringing whatever God has given you, wherever God has called you, into his service. It's for him. It doesn't mean that you're forbidden, and that's what we need to make clear. It, Paul's not saying you're forbidden from ever pursuing a change of circumstances. If you're single, as we're going to see this morning, you can get married, okay? And if you're, if you're widowed, you can get remarried. Or you're a widower, you can get remarried. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying, don't worry about your circumstances. Don't, don't let them become a point of anxiety. 
Every setting that God calls a man or a woman to himself is an opportunity to glorify God. If you're a Jew, you can glorify God in your Jewishness as a Gentile, slave or free, man or woman, married or unmarried. That's what we've learned thus far. And so we come now to the text, which is before us in these final verses. And Paul has an extended word primarily, but not exclusively, primarily for those who have never been married. He refers to them here in verse 25 as virgins. They can refer to both men and women who have never been married, but context throughout most of this, would he's speaking to a woman. But again, it can, a term can apply to both. And we need to understand as we get into this section that, like we said at the outset, true godliness unites right actions with right motivation. Right actions with right attitudes. And the Corinthians were championing singleness, which is good and right in and of itself. But their reasons, their motivation, their attitude for doing so were, was wrong. And beyond that, as we'll see in the text, singleness isn't for everybody. Singleness is not for everybody. So what do you do with folks who do want to get married? And many adults, like we said, will get married and uh, want to be married, and uh, they'll have an opportunity to do so. so. So how should we think about that? So Paul's concern throughout our text this morning, verses 25 to 40, is uniting right actions with right attitudes when it comes to singleness and marriage. And we can break the text down into three parts, and this is how I would encourage you to uh, follow along with me in by outline. First, in verses 25 to 28, Paul encourages us to do the right thing, right action, while pointing out the wrong attitude. Paul encourages us to do the right thing while pointing out the wrong attitude. In verses 29 to 35, Paul warns us against doing the wrong thing while pointing us to the right attitude. It's a kind of flip-flop. Paul warns us against doing the wrong thing, and I'll define what I mean by the wrong thing, Pointing us while pointing us to the right attitude. And lastly, in verses 36 to 40, we're reminded to do the right thing with the right attitude. So we begin in verses 25 to 28. And in these verses, Paul encourages the church to do the right thing while pointing out their wrong attitude. Verse 25, he says, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who, by the mercy of the Lord, is trustworthy. I think then that this, is, that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. Now, when you think about my heading that I'm giving to this section you might be thinking, what do you mean Paul encourages his church to do the right thing? Because, you, I mean, he's been saying all along that there is no right thing. Um, there's no right or wrong when it comes to choosing marriage or singleness. He even says it in verse 25. I don't have a command to give you. I'm simply giving you my opinion as one by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. So, so even Paul doesn't have any commands, any black and white issue with marriage or singleness. So what do you mean Paul encourages the church to do the right thing? 
Well, what I mean by that is that Paul, in Paul's mind, marriage is good and right and honorable, and singleness is good and right and honorable. Both can glorify, we can glorify God in both of those situations. So what, I guess I'm trying to tell you what I'm not saying by right. It, marriage, it's not marriage good, you know, singleness bad, or singleness good and marriage bad. It's two sta- these two stations in life are not in competition with each other. My point is there is a word of encouragement here for both groups, both those who are single and those who are married. If you look at verse 27, he says, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So there's a right. When I mean by right, I mean fitting or proper. There is a right thing, a fitting or proper thing for both groups to do, but it depends on your circumstances. So if you're married, it is fitting in God's eyes for you to stay married. And if you're single, it is fitting or right or proper in God's eyes if you choose to stay single. But we do have to acknowledge that Paul is focused in this section primarily on those who are not married to those who are single. And some of you who have been in, you know, listening to all these other messages on marriage and so forth are thinking, finally, you know, finally something for us. But there is absolutely a, an emphasis and his attention is focused on those who are unmarried and particularly those who've never been married. And, uh, and so he has something to say to them. And what does he say? Well, look at verse 26. I think then this is Paul's opinion, that it is good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. So Paul's summary counsel is this, that singleness is good. It's good. Um, And uh, remember, they were saying the same thing. They were advocating for singleness. They were saying singleness is good too. So Paul is saying, listen, Uh, It is, I concur with your conclusion. I agree with your conclusion that the single life is good and even maybe preferable, but your reason for encouraging it is wrong. It's wrong. In other words, they had the wrong attitude or reasoning. There was a faction, like we said earlier, that said the discipleship necessitated, meaning it could not be otherwise, that the single, that's going to be that a believer must live a life of singleness, or if they were married, a life of celibacy, and that to get married was viewed as fleshly and sinful. And Paul says, no, no, you're right in the sense that the single life is good, and, uh, and, but it's not because marriage is wrong or sinful it's because the single life is good, he says, and the reasoning he gives is because of this present distress, is what he mentions in verse 26. There was some pressing circumstance specific to that church and that was laying hard on this group. And Paul writes to them, and he says, listen, in view of that, I think it's preferable that one remain single. One commentator, and you say, well, what was this circumstance? Well, one commentator thinks it could have been a great famine um, that was prophesied by uh, Agabus in Acts chapter 11. And Luke then comments that that great famine across the whole known world came to pass in the time of the Roman emperor Claudius. So, so maybe, maybe that's what they were dealing with. There was a time of famine and lack. 
And Paul, that was causing some affliction. We don't know for sure, and I certainly wouldn't be dogmatic about it, but there was some kind of present distress that was, that was coming down on them. And whatever Paul has in mind, this church that he loved, they found themselves in distressing circumstances. And on account of that, Paul felt it best to encourage them to stay put. You know, as one, one commentator says, when this, the high seas are raging, it's no time for changing ships. And, uh, and that's kind of the, the, the thrust of his counsel here. The difference between, though, God, Paul's godly counsel and the Corinthians' pseudo-spiritual counsel is that Paul's counsel allows for men and women of good conscience to choose a different path, whereas the Corinthians' faulty counseling did not. I mean, look at verse 28. He says, If you marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. So, Paul highlights, I think one of the implications of this first section that Paul highlights is that mature Christians, which he is, and they are not, don't just draw the right conclusions. Mature Christians draw the right conclusions for the right reasons. True godliness, like we said at the outset, unites right actions with right attitudes, right reasoning, and in so doing, preserves the peace of the body, building it up. Immature Christians, like a broken clock, will display the right time twice a day. That's the idea. But it's not because their spiritual gears are humming along properly. It's the res- and, and so because of that, they cause division that God never intends and end up tearing down the body. So if their counsel had been followed to the end, it would have ended up splitting the church because there were inevitably people who said, no, marriage isn't wrong. Um, And those who are married certainly would feel very much uh, pressured to either divorce their spouse or or to pursue a life of celibacy and, and, of course, to defraud one another. And so he says, so the point is that immature Christians will sometimes come to the right conclusions, but they'll do so for the wrong reasoning. We need to be careful of that. An example, just a practical example, I went to you know, seminary with a bunch of guys, and everybody there, for the most part, wanted to study the God's Word, and they wanted to know the Scriptures, and they wanted to go out and even pastor churches and shepherd the flock, which are all good things. I mean, they're noble things, and they're things that, praise God, that people want to do. But for some, in the years since, It's become obvious their motivations for doing so weren't for Christ, and they certainly weren't for his glory, but for them and for their glory. Pastoral ministry and the word of God then were largely um, a vehicle to help them build a platform for themselves or to win the applause of a certain Christian subculture. And their motivation for ministry was not making disciples and shepherding the flock. And so Again, their, their, their actions are right and good. It's good for a, a, a man to want to pastor and shepherd and care for the flock of God. And it's good for him to want to get trained to do that with skill and excellence and, and, um, and with um, a true, you know, to, to understand the truth so as to be able to teach and preach it rightly. But it was used, it has been used for some as a means to a different end and that their motivations were wrong. And of course, they certainly, certainly many of them have divided Christ's church. So Paul's point is that singleness is good and right, which is what they were saying, and even preferable. 
as we'll see in a moment. But those who choose to get married, and this is what he wants you to understand, they haven't sinned. It's not wrong. It's not wrong. They aren't less spiritual, and they aren't less useful for God's kingdom. Paul simply wants to be upfront with them that marriage implies added responsibilities, and marriage in times of distress opens the door to greater heartache, which Paul doesn't want them to have to deal with. That's why he says what he says at the end of verse 28. Yet such married folks will have trouble in this life. I'm trying to spare you, <laughs> just looking out for you. So Paul encourages, not commands, encourages the church to do what is fitting, pointing out their wrong attitude. So you can get married or you can pursue singleness as long as your motivation is right. Secondly, in verses 29 to 35, Paul warns against doing the wrong thing. And again, by wrong, I mean the non-fitting, what's not fitting or proper, and points them toward the right attitude. There's no question about it that Paul is advocating, encouraging believers to consider singleness as a legitimate option for the Christian life. Again, not because one is right and one is sin, but because singleness comes with some unique advantages that, that are often overlooked in a culture that, where marriage is kind of the norm. Paul understands that most people, both Christian and non-Christian, will be married at some point in their lives, but he doesn't want those who, who pursue marriage or those who remain single, for that matter, particularly in the church, to suffer with anxiety and worldly preoccupation. He cares about this church. He loves this church. He pastored it for nearly a year and a half. And his motivation for saying everything that he says in this chapter, and particularly these verses, is their spiritual and practical well-being. Look at verse 28. At the end, he says, I, I, you will have trouble, and I'm trying to spare you. Or verse 32, but I want you to be free from anxiety, literally is what that says, from concern. Verse 35, he says, I, I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you. So his point is if you choose marriage, he wants you to make sure you live faithfully for Christ. And if you choose to remain single, he wants you to make sure you live faithfully for Christ. That's why I say he warns against doing the wrong thing. He does that by pointing them to the right attitude. What And what is the proper attitude? Well, that's what we see in the text. Two things, kind of sub-points, if you will. First, not marriage, not singleness, not present distresses, nor anything else defines or determines our lives as Christians. Not marriage, not singleness, not present distresses or circumstances, nor anything else defines or determines our life. He says in verse 29, But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. This is a principle. And he's making, a, it's a truism. Those who have spouses tend to get caught up in their marriages. And those who mourn tend to be fo focused exclusively on their mourning. And those who rejoice are often swept up in their rejoicing. And those who purchase new things, right? Any little kid at Christmas or any kid who gets a new iPhone, 
Right? They're caught up in their positions. This is what we do. And Paul's point is that those of us who make use of the things of this world, which we all do, should not be engrossed in them. Make, that's what he means by make full use of it. That's the idea. It could be translated engrossed. They did not, uh, as those who uh, use the world, we should not be as those who are engrossed in those things personally. We shouldn't let them define us. We shouldn't let them determine the course of our lives. Why? Why does it matter? Well, he tells us at the end of verse 31. Because for, because the form of this world is passing away. Because there's nothing permanent about any of it. That's his idea. It's foolishness for Christians to act like the things of this present evil world or anything other than transitory. And the application in this context is obvious. If you're married, your marriage isn't the end all and be all of your life. And if you're single and you want to be married, which isn't necessarily bad, it's a good thing, you need to understand that marriage is not going to make all your problems go away. And it's not going to make all your dreams come true. Oh, I'm the exception, but that's... (laughs) But for most of you, it won't. No. Marriage, not marriage, not singleness, not distresses, nor anything else defines or determines our lives. It's all sand. And if you build your life on it, it will not sustain you. It will not sustain things. But the second thing that he makes, the point he makes in verse 32 and to 35 is this. Life is defined and determined by our new existence in Christ. Our life is defined and determined not by circumstances or marriage or singleness or whatever, but in our new commitment to Christ. Paul says, I want you to be free from anxiety. Uh, It depends on your translation here, but I think the NAS is not helpful in that it translates the term concern throughout this section as if it's all the same word, the same term. It's not. The first statement in verse 32 is, I want you to be free from anxiety. That's, that's sinful anxiety. Paul singles out, and that's a pun, intended, two modes of existence in this passage. One of anxiety and one of responsible care and consecration. And that's what we need to see. There's this interplay. He says, this is what I don't want. I don't want you to have this wrong attitude of anxiety and fear. On the other hand, he understands that the unmarried can be concerned in a, in, or really, literally care for the things of the Lord, which is right and good. That's right. That concern is good. But you have a choice. You can either be concerned about the things of the Lord in a, in a care-for way, consecrated way, or you can be anxious about those. I mean, just by way of contrast. And so it is for those who are married. You can either be concerned or consecrated or caring for the things of the Lord and your family, or you can be anxious about those things. And Paul says, I don't want you to be anxious. What's unique about the married person is that even though they are caring for the things of the Lord, they also need to rightly be caring for and consecrated to their wife and, if God gives them children, to their family. When you're married, there's more responsibility. When you're married, the person's interests are divided in the sense that there's more to keep track of. 
Now, are the married person's cares different than the unmarried person's? Of course. Are, those, are, are they more involved than the unmarried person? Yeah, absolutely. But are they, is the married life inferior or sinful? Paul says absolutely not. Not at all. That's why I say our traditional interpretation of this passage, my, my understanding of this passage has been radically altered in studying through it this week. What Paul wants for both married and singles is that they would live without anxiety, free from concern, even though they must continue to make use of this world. Paul reminds us that while we live in the world, we are not of the world. Isn't that what we read in our scripture reading? Jesus said, listen, it's not that I want to take them out of the world. I just don't want them to be of the world. Your life, my life, married or not, single or whatever, is defined as a Christian, is defined and determined by our new existence in Christ. Our life is built on the rock and not the sand. And so Paul wants whatever path we choose to be free from the anxiety-ridden existence that characterizes those who live in this world as if that's all there is. That's the contrast. I want you to be free from anxiety. One who's unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. That's a good concern. That's a, that's a good consecration care for the, the things of the Lord. But one who is married is rightly, in a, in a good way, concerned and consecrated to the things of this world as well. For example, how to please his spouse, his wife, and his interests are divided. Again, this, this passage is typically understood to mean that uh, the married life is somewhat, sub, I guess, substandard because your interests are divided. And that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, whatever you have, this is what I, he says, not to put a restraint on you. He's not saying do this or not do this, get married or stay single. His, the picture here is one of, of uh, tying a, ruse, a noose around their necks. That's literally the term, like you would rope an animal. He says, listen, that's not what I'm doing here. He's not saying get married. He's not saying you have to stay single, which is, that makes sense because that's what he's been saying through the whole chapter. It would make no sense. They're already advocating singleness. If he's like, well, the single life is really, really, really good. And the married life is kind of like, right? That would only reinforce their wrong understanding. He's saying, whatever you choose, I want you to be free from concern. He wants each of us to do what is fitting and proper and right. And he wants us to live our lives in unbroken, distracted, and unbroken, undistracted service to the Lord. So verse 35 is, it's, it is true that as Christians, as singles, that you have a unique opportunity. But that's not as if married people have no opportunity. We can both live, um, as he says in verse 35, we, he says, I'm simply trying to promote what is appropriate, what is fitting, and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Is that just for the single person? No, it's for everybody, married or not, widowed or not, remarried, whatever the situation is. He wants to promote singular devotion to Christ. If you're single, your balance sheet has less liabilities to service. So praise God. So life will be a little easier in that sense, but it's no less valuable to be married or unmarried. 
So that's why I say he's warning them against the wrong thing, what is not fitting, which is anxiety, and points them to the right attitude, singular devotion to Christ. Lastly, he reminds them to do the right thing with the right, for the right reasons, with the right reasons. See that in verses 36 to 40. He encourages right actions and right reasons. Look at verse 36. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart, to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then, he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. Now this is a particularly difficult passage to translate because there's a debate over who is he talking about here. Some translations like NAS, like what I'm preaching and teaching out of, the picture here is between a father and his daughter, his unmarried daughter. Other translations take it as a young man and his fiance. So depending on what translation you have, it might read similar to that. Uh, some others have argued, and I don't think this is really compelling, but some have argued that he's talking about, quote-unquote, spiritual marriages, where a, hus- where a husband and wife are trying to live as if they're not truly married, like brother and sister. Again, I don't think any of those, uh, I don't think any but the first is really compelling on balance. I believe, take the text as we would read it in the NAS, he's referring to the, a father and his virgin daughter, his unmarried daughter. And at the point he's making then is, but is, the point he's making is clear, even if the identity of who he's exactly talking to is not. Now, in the first century, who was responsible primarily culturally for kind of signing off on a marriage? It would have been who? Probably the father or a parent or guardian, right? So we got to understand the cultural context in which Paul's making these comments. Don't get hung up on the, on the specifics. The scene here Paul describes is of a parent or guardian who thinks, who at this point is thinking that celibacy and, and, uh, is preferred to marriage and he's refusing to allow his unmarried daughter to go get married, which culturally he has the right to do. Um, whether he's doing that against her will or not isn't entirely clear. One would hope that a righteous man would take his daughter's, consider- his daughter's opinion into consideration in that, but it wasn't necessarily the norm. But he, so that was his, his kind of default thought process. Well, no, I, I need to keep her uh, unmarried. But now he's starting to wonder whether he's doing the right thing. You know, to hold her back from getting married had consequences when she was the right age to be married, an, an adult, a young adult, and, and, and for him to hold that back would have courted disaster in this time, heaping dishonor on both him and, and his daughter. As a, as a parent, or particularly a father or guardian who sees all this, Paul makes clear that either option is acceptable. Either option is acceptable. This is the point he has made through the whole chapter. Marriage is good. (laughs) Okay, Verse 36, if any man thinks he's acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. 
So again, if the attitude and the reasons are right, she's the proper age, meaning she's not a, not a child. There's no um, calling of singleness upon her life. As we'll see in verse 39, that the person as a Christian that you would give her to in marriage is also a Christian because that is the requirement only in the Lord. Paul says marriage is good. Go for it. Let her get married. But on the flip side, verse 37, he says, He who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, having no but has authority over his own will, and has decided in his own heart to keep her his own virgin daughter, he will do well. Again, the attitudes and the reasons behind the action must be fitting or proper. It's clear. The reasons he gives are multiple. It's clear that it's the right course. He points out that there's no external obligation, like some kind of marriage arrangement. He has the right to do so as the father, because a slave wouldn't necessarily have had the right to sign off or not sign off. Again, these are very cultural-specific issues. And uh, he's decided, he's made a judgment that he'd like to keep his daughter uh, unmarried. Um, Paul's point then, when we look past all the cultural specifics, again, we've got to take it abstract to the level of principle because our cultural context is very different. When we look past all of those things that make us uncomfortable in this text culturally, his point is simple. Marriage and singleness are both fine when they're done for the right reasons. That's why he says, so then he who, does the, so then he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well. And he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married only to whom she wishes, um, only in the Lord. Excuse me, to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think I have the Spirit of God. It's clear as you read this section, both earlier and these verses, Paul has a preference for singleness. Not because marriage is sinful, but because of the present distress of their circumstances and the added responsibilities that marriage brings. Nevertheless, he is not going to put a rope over anybody and constrain them to his position, nor is it necessary for them to seek a change. He says, if you're married, stay married. If you're single, stay single. Consider that as an option. If your spouse passes away, he says, you can, verse 39, you can be remarried only in the Lord. But you don't have to. That's his point. Right actions need to be wed with the right reasons. The right reasons. The simple application from this section is this. In a world where marriage is kind of the norm, still is today, just like it was then. Singleness can be viewed as a sort of second-tier status. And Paul makes it clear that that is absolutely wrong biblically. Scripture does not say that singleness is better than marriage, as if marriage is bad and singleness is good. It never makes that distinction. It has, this whole section has nothing to do with good and evil. It doesn't even have anything to do with better or worse. It has to do with good and better in light of your specific circumstances. Whether you're married or single or hoping to be married one day in the future, 
I would just echo Paul's encouragement to all of us. Build your life on the rock of Jesus Christ and not the sand. If you're married, that's what he says. If you're married, you need to live as though the time is shortened. Live as if you don't have a wife in some ways, meaning that you should not be engrossed in those things. Those who weep as though... They did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. Those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the world is passing away. As he says, as Paul says elsewhere, the days are evil. Remember Ephesians 5? Redeem, buy back the time. That's the encouragement here. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, he lived, he bled and died, And he rose again in the place of sinners to rescue them and us from the wrath to come. And all who come to him by faith are welcomed and pardoned and empowered to live for him. If you're single, he'll empower you to do that. If you're married, he'll empower you to do that. If you're widowed, he'll empower you to live for him. And when the rains fall and the floods come, as Jesus says, and the winds blow and slam against your house, if you build it on Christ and the rock, it will not fail. Why? Jesus says, because it is founded on the rock. This is the encouragement to this section. I used to always think this section had everything to do with, you know, single life is the best life. And uh, that's certainly true. I don't think that Paul's saying it's not good, but I think when you understand that the thrust of this passage isn't that singleness is like, like tier one and marriage is tier two, but no matter where you find yourself, because he's addressing both groups of people throughout this whole section, no matter where you find yourself, Christ needs to be at the forefront, at the center. And so that's why I've entitled this message Singleness and Singular Devotion. Whether you're single or not, married or not, may we be building our life on the rock that is Jesus Christ and not the sand. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your rich truth. And, and one of the things that's just come clear to me even this week is that no matter how much we know and study and understand of these things, we're just reminded there's more to learn. There's more to understand. There's more to grasp. The text is inexhaustible. We pray, Lord, that we would indeed follow through on that commandment, that we would live as those who are in the world but not making full use of it. Whatever our spiritual context our practical context, married or not, um, Lord, may we live for you. And Lord, if there's any here amongst us this morning who, who need to build their life, begin to build their life upon the rock that is Jesus Christ, and forsake and turn away from that life built on the sand, I pray that you would draw their hearts to you. May they cast their hope and care on you and find you to be as so many through the centuries have found you to be utterly trustworthy and dependable. And may they live for you. Lord, empower us for that end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.